he positions himself as this deficit hawk, which is just an extraordinarily, I mean, that's really a shameless claim by, by President Biden, because the truth is that he's been the worst deficit president so far we've had in our entire history on, a, on an annualized basis. He, uh, according to the Congressional Budget Office, he, he signed legislation that the, the, the last round, I think it was, of COVID stimulus spending in 2021 that increased deficit spending in 2021 alone by $1.1 trillion. So that's $1.1 trillion. That's, that's not attributable to President Trump. That's Biden and, and the Congress. And so he's got that. And then the next year, we have $1.4 trillion in deficit spending this year. That's $2.5 trillion that Biden's responsible for. He hasn't even been in office for 21 months. Um, I mean, it's an extraordinary number. We've, we've run up about as much deficit spending under Biden as we did during World War II after adjusting for inflation. And, and to say, well, the spending is much lower in 2022 than in 2021 when he signed legislation bumping up the spending in 2021 by over a trillion dollars. I mean, that's just a shameless claim. Howdy, everyone, and welcome back to Moment of Truth, the podcast of American Moment. My name is Saurabh Sharma. I'm the president of American Moment. And this week, it's just me. I don't know where Nick is. I'm having another baby. I have no idea. Uh, he's, he's, he's out you know, doing operations for American Moment. Um, today, we had on another fantastic guest. But before I get to that, be sure, as always, to go to AmericanMoment.org. There you can find the backlog of this podcast, uh, new programs that we're launching. The American Moment Fellowship for American Statecraft application is live. Hundreds of you had filled out the interest form until this point. Go and actually fill out the application now. Uh, it is extremely competitive, but again, we care deeply about making sure people who would otherwise have a hard time breaking into D.C. get here via this program. It's going to be bigger and better than ever. There are some super exciting things in the work for what the program actually looks like. We're extremely grateful to be able to host it for another year. Uh, thank you to our supporters for helping make that happen. Uh, but go apply. It's AmericanMoment.org slash fellowship. Fill out the application. If you don't, uh, you'll hate your life for the rest of time. Uh, you can also check out the backlog of this podcast there. We're over, what, 93 episodes now. It's just crazy how much content we have. Capital C content. We're always delivering for you guys. Uh, but today we have a, a real chunky, long, and, and policy-dense episode for you guys. Had a lot of fun recording it with uh, Jeffrey H. Anderson, who's the founder and president of the American Main Street Initiative, a think tank for everyday Americans. He served as the director of Bureau, for the Bureau of Justice Statistics. Uh, that's one of those kind of difficult words to get out. Um, at the United States Department of Justice from 2017 to 2021. Uh, and then outside of government, he has had more than a thousand pieces published in national outlets. He, he knows how to get pieces out. He can write, uh, something I struggle immensely with. Um, uh, he earned his PhD studying America's founding principles at Claremont Graduate University. Uh, he's a former U.S. Air Force Academy professor, and he served as a senior speechwriter to the Secretary of Health and Human Services at the beginning of, uh, in uh, the previous uh, Republican administration under Bush. Uh, he co-founded and ran a successful startup, the 2017 Project, and was a Hudson Institute senior fellow before he became the director of BJS. He was a leader in the Obamacare debate, and he authored the winning alternative to Obamacare and then developed the Main Street Tax Plan to promote economic growth. Uh, no one listened to him on both these policies, so we got a really crappy alternative to Obamacare that got voted down, and uh, the most unpopular bill in American history, that is to say, uh, the, the tax cuts under the Trump administration. He also co-created the Anderson and Hester College Football Computer Rankings, which were part of the Bowl Championship Series. 
throughout its 16-year run. Uh, Jeff and I get into it here, um, partially because uh, I'm a Zoomer and I have a hard time caring about the national debt. And so I like needle him for like a good hour about why on earth I should care. I think he makes some arguments that are compelling, maybe some that are not. I'd be very curious to hear what you have to say. Uh, be sure, as always, to rate and review the podcast. And if you rate it five stars and ask a question or have a comment, we'll read it out here on, on the show. Um, but we'll go now to Jeff Anderson, uh, the president and founder of the American Main Street Initiative. Jeff, thank you for coming on the podcast. My pleasure. It's good to be here. Uh, I'm always curious to hear how people got to the point where they are today. You have a very interesting uh, career um, where you've been, you know, uh, opposing some of the dumber ideas of the left and the stupider ideas of the right for a long time. Tell us the story. How'd you end up doing everything that you do today? Well, I'm an Air Force brat. My my dad flew B-52s and we moved all around the country. I think we lived in 12 places or something like that growing up. So I've got the edge on you. I've lived in 14. <laughs> oh, you, you do have the edge. We both spent, have spent some time in Texas, though. That's right. I've been anywhere from like the deep south to Southern California to North Dakota. Lived in every region of the country except the Northeast. And I, and I think that um, has has been advantageous, actually, because I feel like I have a better sense of America than I otherwise would have if I had, say, been born and raised inside the Beltway, like a lot of people here. Um, I uh, When I was in college at the University of Washington, I was I'm a big sports fan, big college football fan. I developed a college football computer ranking system that a few years later ended up being used by the Bowl Championship Series to decide which teams would play in the national championship game. It was one of the components. We had a 5.6% say, I think, during most of the run. Yeah. Um, and uh, right out of college, I, I worked for Kellogg's, actually, at the cereal company as a sales rep. And uh, after two or three years of that, I decided I really wanted to dive more into our founding principles and, and get a deeper intellectual understanding of where our, of, of our founders, our founding ideals. And so I ended up in at Claremont Graduate University for, for graduate school, got my PhD there, studying under people like Charles Kessler. And at the time, I didn't realize it was probably the best place in the country I could have ended up, but it was, it seems providential. Yeah. From there, I went to the Air Force Academy and taught as a um, political science professor for about six years, American government and political philosophy. Uh, then I decided I was I really wanted to have more of a direct hands-on impact on politics and came out to D.C., ended up being a speechwriter for the Secretary of Health and Human Services. Later on, I uh, helped found and ran a, a group called the 2017 Project, uh, a small group pushing for poli- pushing policy ideas for the year 2017. This was back around 2013. I ended up at the Hudson Institute, a think tank here in D.C., and then went into the Trump administration. And I worked briefly as the director of the Office of Health Reform before sliding over and spent more than three years as the director of the Bureau of Justice Statistics. So which, Office of Health Reform, I, I can instantly, through those words, know what that means. What, what, what's a Bureau of Justice Statistics? What is that? What does that so do? We're this, we're this, that, was the st- that is the statistical arm of the Department of Justice. So we were responsible for putting out all the federal stats on crime and punishment. Okay. Uh, so it's, it's a, it's a, it was a good gig. It was an important job. I was working under... Uh, Attorney General Sessions, and then Barr. And um, I worked all the way through the, to the last day of the administration. And then after that, I started the group I'm I'm running now, the American Main Street Initiative. And we're a, a small think tank seeking to push the, the ideas that animate everyday Americans from coast to coast, as opposed to the establishment-focused ideas that tend to dominate here in D.C., well, it's an important mission to have. Uh, one of the uh, casus belli for, for you to come on for this episode is just a few days ago, we had the State of the Union. Um, and 
you know, when I think of who's our sort of jack of all trades on all issues, domestic policy, like who's the person who I could call who, who knows exactly what he's talking about. It isn't just bloviating on Twitter. It's you. So so what's your what's your take? What happened at the State of the Union? Did did, did Brandon perform well, overperform, underperform? Do, tell us tell us about it. Well, you'd think watching it that we were, you know, that it were uh, 1984 with Ronald Reagan and, you know, it's morning in America. Everything's great. I don't know. That, I don't think most of the American public views things that way. Um, I do think Biden does succeed in giving off a good sort of working class vibe, concern for middle class Americans. Um, I'll give him credit that he seemed to value work in the speech, which is something that many on the left seem to have abandoned that notion and seem to think that if people can just subside on government payments and and, uh, you know, recreational drugs, that's that's a perfect way of life. Um, Biden clearly doesn't subscribe to that. Um, his picture of things, I think, is um, was something of a fantasy in many, many respects. Right off the bat, he said that uh, January 6th, 2021 was the greatest threat to democracy since the Civil War, which apparently World War II wasn't all that much of a threat to democracy. I, that's a, a pretty amazing statement. Um, later on, he took credit as being a, uh, a deficit hawk when, in fact, he's been the worst deficit president so far on an annualized basis in the history of the country. So... Uh, you know, it was it was sort of uh, par for the course in many ways, I think. So all that strikes me as as facially likely. Uh, but but he said things and had fancy sounding numbers. And uh, I want to go through a little bit and, and disabuse people of the uh, notion of the, the relative strength or weakness of the of the Biden economy. Let's start with jobs. Um, we jokingly put together at American Moment sort of a bingo card ahead of the State of the Union of, of what we imagined a lot of the shibboleths that would come up is if someone had used it as a drinking game, uh, they'd be dead. Um, it was it was quite on the money. And one of the one of the uh, little sections we had was a uh, you know quote unquote most jobs ever. I think he has some statistics saying he's he's added more jobs in X period of time than any president. Uh, is that true? If it's true, how is it misleading? If it's not misleading, then why shouldn't Republicans give him his due? Well, it's one of the most irrelevant statements. <laughs> ever, I think. I mean, when you shut down the economy during COVID and you say small businesses can't operate and everybody has to stay locked up in their houses and, and uh, you know, nobody's working. We have these huge supply chain problems. And then and then now, a couple of years later, we actually have more people working. I mean, that's not exactly a great achievement. I mean, we're, we're still struggling. I think everybody sees it from time to time with a shortage of workers. It's, it's, it's really a failure to get workers back into the workforce, I think, that is should be the line of criticism against the Biden administration with I mean, the, the ridiculously long and over generous um, unemployment checks that uh, I mean, both uh, President Trump and Biden were and, and obviously Congress were complicit in that. But I mean, when you, just, when you pay people more in unemployment than many of them make to work, people are generally going to do the calculation and say, well, I don't think I'll go to work. And so everywhere you go, you find, uh, especially like in, um, you know, the service sector in fast food restaurants, places like that. Still got help wanted signs all over the place. So I think we're low on employment now. I don't think it's a selling point to say we have low unemployment now. I saw this somewhere in relation to what the Fed's likely to do on monetary policy, but aren't we sitting at the lowest unemployment since like 19 in the, since the 1960s? It's something like the putative numbers like 3.4%. Why why is that misleading? Well, again, I think you got a lot of people who just left the workforce during COVID. They said, all right, well, everything's shut down. Um, I can 
either get this unemployment check or I can go to work. Or, or many if people made more money, a lot of them, I think, thought, I don't want to work in these circumstances where I'm being forced to wear a mask. In many cases, I'm, uh, I'm in some cases being forced to get a vaccine. A lot of people just bailed out and said, all right, I've had enough. They haven't returned. I don't think that's a great development. I mean, I, I think uh, in some cases, people are, are probably happy to have chosen that course. But nationwide, I don't think it's necessarily a great thing. I mean, we do have low unemployment. That's that's a, a positive. That's undeniable. But you got to put put it in that broader context. So so I, I'm curious about, about how this number works, because, um, you know, uh, what, what's that old line about lies, damn lies and statistics or whatever? Um, I think that with a lot of these econometrics that people use to describe the quality of, of the American economy, there's a lot of fudging that can happen. What exactly is the unemployment number as as is promulgated in public policy? And why does it not capture the, the full story of what's going on? Well, having not run the Bureau of Labor Statistics, I'm certainly <laughs> not, not a real expert on this, but my understanding is that people who are not looking for employment mm -hmm. are, are not counted. So it's, it's basically a measure of among people who are looking for jobs, can you find one? And and drive anywhere in America now and look at all the help wanted signs. It, it, it's not hard to believe. We have a low unemployment rate. We, the businesses are desperate for workers. Mm -hmm. So at this point in time, um, what are the incentives that are still on the table for people not to go back to work? That's a good question. I, I don't know that the incentives are particularly... I think they've sort of expired, and yet it seems like there's sort of just a continuation of um, maybe people got enough in terms of the the government handouts during that period that they're just still kind of coasting, mm -hmm. that they haven't chosen to go back. They haven't found the right fit. Um, you know, I've heard of people who like quit their jobs because they didn't want to deal with the mask or vaccine mandates, and they just haven't quite figured out where they want to go next, mm -hmm. and they've got enough savings to, to make it in the interim. Um, so I think it's more of like, a, you know, a a boat that's going off and you, you cut the engine and it keeps coasting for a while. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Let's go to some other things that, that Biden talked about in his speech. Um, he is uh, touting uh, being the uh, biggest uh, deficit reducer of any president in American history. I, I can imagine you were close to throwing a remote at the television <laughs> as, as he was saying this. Um, but what exactly did he claim and, and why is that misleading? <laughs> well, you're talking about the possible drinking games. I mean, I, I would have... <laughs> bet my house that he would have made that claim you know yeah. he uh he was definitely going to claim he's, he's he's said this before you know I'm, he positions himself as this deficit hawk which is just an extraordinarily i mean that's really a shameless claim by by president biden because the truth is that he's been the worst deficit president so far we've had in our entire history on a on an annualized basis he uh according to the congressional budget office he he signed legislation that the, the the last round, I think it was, of COVID stimulus spending in 2021 that increased deficit spending in 2021 alone by $1.1 trillion. So that's $1.1 trillion. That's, that's not attributable to President Trump. That's Biden and, and the Congress. And so he's got that. And then the next year, we have $1.4 trillion in deficit spending this year. That's $2.5 trillion that Biden's responsible for. He hasn't even been in office for 21 months. Um, I mean, it's an extraordinary number. We've, we've run up about as much deficit spending under Biden as we did during World War II after adjusting for inflation. And, and to say, well, the spending is much lower in 2022 than in 2021 when he signed legislation bumping up the spending in 2021 by over a trillion dollars. I mean, that's just a shameless claim. Yeah. 
Is most of that spending coming from Inflation Reduction Act or where is it coming from? Most of that came from the from the last stimulus okay. package under COVID. Okay. The Inflation Adjustment Act adds a little more, but yeah. not nearly as much as that did in the short term. Gotcha. Um, you know, one of the themes that, that Biden kept on coming to, which again, I think facially is compelling uh, to to someone who's just a regular voter looking at uh, what's what's happening from the outside um, is this, you know, vast legislative record of accomplishments. Um, you know, uh, where, where do you think um, it's not all that? And, and is there any uh, aspect of it that Republicans should should look at and, and maybe be concerned that this is a real argument he can take to voters in terms of ways he's delivered for them? I don't think most of this is particularly attractive to voters. I mean, ever since Biden got into office, he's been attempting to satisfy the desires of the left wing of the Democratic Party, which is is now ascendant. I mean, he's, as many people have said, he's pretty much pursuing a Bernie Sanders agenda. Um, if you love big government, the Biden administration has been has been a wonderful one for you. But I think we've seen, I think the American people have seen and, and recognized the effects of some of this. I mean, the, the rampant inflation, I think almost everyone attributes that to some extent to the runaway government spending. Um, more and more, you just have this constant regulation of all aspects of people's lives. Obviously, people are very concerned about the mask mandates, the vaccine mandates, the school, what they learned with, with all the kids stuck home, not able to go to school when they should have been able to go to school and seeing what the teachers are teaching and the indoctrination. And 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 the Biden administration is busy pushing all that sort of indoctrination through uh, executive orders and every way it can. Most of this, I think, is highly unpopular with the American public. I think Biden's image as the sort of everyday Joe, working man. And I think that's how he views himself. Um, I think that is appealing to American voters. I don't think the policies are. Interesting. Um, I want to jump around a little bit because while we're on this topic of of deficit spending, uh, American Mainstream Initiative has put out the first of what I hope will be many uh, quick hits. Uh, this is kind of a, a four to five page uh, format document. I may be getting the exact four. page. Four, four page document. Um, you're going to be doing it on a variety of public policy right. issues, but but this first one you um, made is on the national debt. Um, I will be entirely honest. Uh, when people start talking about the national debt, I start falling asleep. <laughs> Why should I care? You know, that's that's a good question. A lot of people seem to have that attitude. Why should we care? And it shows in how much debt we've racked up in mm -hmm. recent years. I mean, for starters, I think one of the best arguments against all this deficit spending is that uh, Right now, when every $9 Americans send in, in tax money, the first dollar or so basically just gets thrown in the trash. Federal government takes it and doesn't spend it on anything. It just goes to interest payments on the debt. I mean, if you spend, if you get forced to pay $9,000 in federal income tax, the first $1,000 is basically just wasted. I mean, that's a lot of money. This is costing Americans big time. And the only reason it's only that low is because we've had historically low interest rates now for quite some time until very recently. They're still pretty low historically. They start rising along with the rising debt. You're going to have larger and larger shares of your uh, of your tax revenue just going to nothing. I, th I think someone told me recently the cost of servicing our debt per year is now greater than the budget of the Pentagon. It's not quite there yet, but it's over, as of 2022, it's over half a trillion dollars mm -hmm. basically just went in the trash. Yeah. And this is not like, uh, you know, an individual person borrowing money to buy a house mm -hmm. or Walt Disney borrowing a bunch of money to build Disneyland or something like this. I mean, a house appreciates over time more often than not. It's something tangible. 
This is like somebody who, an individual person or family who just decides, let's just go on a spending spree. Mm -hmm. Let's just go to the mall and we'll just buy whatever we want and, and we'll put it all on the credit card and every month we'll pay the absolute minimum we can and we'll just get deeper and deeper into debt. Anybody would think that's a problem. Mm -hmm. It's a problem for a country as well. And, and uh, it's a very serious problem. It's getting so much worse. I mean, to put it in perspective, when Ross Perot ran for president in 1992 and he, he managed to get 19% of the popular vote mostly by talking about our out-of-control spending under George H.W. Bush. And it was bad. And trade policy. And trade policy. But I would say that was second to the, to the remember all those debt charts and everything mm -hmm. he had, you know. Uh, I'm tempted to do my Ross Perot imitation. <laughs> and, and he, uh, you know, 19% of the popular vote is massive for a, a third-party candidate. Well, our debt at that time was $4 trillion. We're now at $31 trillion. 30 years later. I mean, we stay on the same pace. If we run up as much debt over the next 30 years and the next 30 years as we have been, we'll be at $1.5 quadrillion in debt, which sounds like a fake number, right? I mean, it's a thousand trillions. That's where we're headed. So, but here's the thing. There were fiscal conservatives and reformers that were raising just as much hell about the $4 trillion as they are today about the $30 trillion. And it's not obvious to me that the catastrophization that they may have been making at $4 trillion actually came to pass. Well, I think some of that's the low interest rates. Okay. I mean, the percentage of Americans' tax money that goes, again, basically just into the trash to pay for interest payments on the debt hasn't really risen a whole lot from back in that general Perot era because interest rates dropped so much. But that's not going to, that's not a perpetual thing. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, it's going to get worse in that regard, I mean, Thomas Jefferson talked about how, uh, you know, in terms of things that lead to wretchedness and oppression, the the four horse of the of the of the apocalypse, of the, or I forget what he said exactly, the four horse from the apocalypse, the the lead horse is 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 debt. Mm -hmm. and this is last days of Rome kind of stuff. You know, it's not just our culture in which we see signs of like being kind of like the last days of Rome. It's a total inability to control our spending. I mean, let's let's in recent years, let's talk about how. In 2020 alone, I mean, Bob Beeman at the 1968 Summer Olympics in, in Mexico City, at that point, he's an, Beeman was an American, still alive, I think. Um, nobody had ever jumped in the history of humanity. Nobody had ever long jumped 27 and a half feet. Beeman soars into the air. He clears 27 and a half, clears 28, clears 28 and a half, clears 29, comes down at 29, two and three quarters or something like that. One of the most unbelievable moments in the history of, of humanity to have this unbelievably perfectly timed jump and hit over 29 feet. Well, in 2020, the federal government apparently doing its best Beeman impersonation. We had never had a one and a half trillion dollar deficit. So they soar past one and a half trillion, past two trillion, past two and a half trillion and land at $3.1 trillion. For every $10 in tax revenue that came in in 2020, the government spent 19. And this is how far we are from a balanced budget. It's crazy. And then we spent more money in 2021 than we did in 2020. And in terms of spending, 2022 is our th our third worst year of the book. So it's 2022 is the bronze medal year with uh, 2021 being the gold and 2020, the silver, you want to put it in Olympic terms. And this is what Biden's talking about as far as being proud of his deficit record. So uh, uh, one more point of context that in 2020, we had more deficit spending in that one year alone than we did during all of World War II, even after adjusting for inflation. And that's unbelievable. Mm -hmm. We also had more in 2020 than we had from the end of World War II until 
1982, a 36-year span of deficits after adjusting for inflation were smaller than the, the one-year deficits of 2020. So I'd like to talk about the overall trend too, but I'll throw it back to you first. Well, so I'll, I'll, take, it, I'll, I'll take your point that it is the historically low interest rates over the last 20-year period that, that made the deficit more tenable. I mean, we, we did basically balance the budget in 1996, right? Um, well, I think it was slightly later than that. Yeah, but, well, yeah. 1998. Maybe, maybe um, it, was, it was under Kasich when he was head of the Senate Budget Committee. He makes a big noise, a song and dance about it. Or well, it was whatever. Gingrich coming in and yeah. fulfilling the contract with right. America and Bill Clinton going along with it. Right. So. And so it's not ancient history that we balance the budget. But you know. point being, you know, th this rising deficit, um, you know, if, if it can only be sustained with low interest rates, yeah, interest rates are jacked up right now. But but we know that all the pressures in the economy from Wall Street are going to be to drive those interest rates back down as quickly as possible as soon as it feels like inflation is a little bit under control. So we could easily see rates get low again. And at that point, Again, I, the thing I keep on coming back to, as someone who who wants to believe that that the the national debt is a big problem, is that all of the arguments that were made when it was four trillion are the same as the arguments that are made today when it's thirty trillion, and it doesn't seem like all of the horrible things that were going to happen have happened yet. Well, what were the horrible things that were alleged? I, I, I don't know. Are, are you know, it's a we default on the debt and you know runaway inflation and uh, well, you know, the currency is going to right. I mean, we've seen but, the worst inflation in forty years. Runaway inflation is a very particular term, and the idea that you know eventually we're going to lose our reserve currency status, the dollar is going to be worthless, yeah. we're going to be Zimbabwe. I mean, wh why have the worst uh, predictions of deficit hawks not come to pass in this intervening period of time? Well, I, I do think it's pretty bad. I mean, part of it is I think the American public doesn't realize how much it's costing them. Again, when you every nine dollars in taxes you spend, a dollar is useless. You didn't really have to spend that. If we could have kept our books balanced, you'd be, you know, eleven percent wealthier in terms of how much tax revenue you had to give in every year. That that's a big deal. But politicians don't talk about that a whole lot. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, we've got the concern of having uh, a lot of the debt is owed to. Other countries, the Chinese and the Japanese are the two who have the, the largest shares of our, our debt that we owe them. They're our creditors, um, over a trillion dollars each. I don't think that's necessarily a great thing. Um, it's, it's just like, again, you know, all the things that everyday Americans get frustrated by, where like the government doesn't think it should have to abide by the principles that Americans have been taught to believe in across their lives. You know, everyone knows you shouldn't just run up endless credit card debt. And yet, like, Establishment Republicans in, in D.C., along with seemingly almost all Democrats in the there used to be blue dog Democrats, you know, people who really cared about the deficits. And and President Clinton's uh, presidency was one of the best periods of, of late, as you said, well, the best of late. Um, but nowadays, practically everybody on the left seems to not care about the debt. And yet, of course, it's a problem. When you're just running up constant debt and it gets more and more expensive every year, more a higher and higher percentage of your tax revenues going to this and no end in sight. I mean, it's it's like this. Um, we, let me talk the, about the trend just a little bit. I mean, it's understandable out of World War II that we would have had some debt and we're fighting a two front war mm -hmm. against Imperial Japan and Nazi Germany. So after World War II in inflation adjusted dollars, we had about $3 trillion in debt. Thanks to the work of statesmen of both parties, we went from 3 trillion down to one and a half trillion in inflation adjusted. All these are inflation adjusted figures by 1974. But then the Great Society programs, which were passed in the mid-60s, Lyndon Johnson and uh, mostly the Democrats, 
namely Medicare and Medicaid, they had kicked in by then. At that point, they were about 7% of all tax revenues. Now they're over 30% of all tax revenues. Well, so from 1974, we'd cut the post-World War II debt in half. By 1986, it was back up to World War II levels. Then we had a, a period of, of, of fiscal responsibility under Gingrich and Clinton in the late 90s. And then the Congressional Budget Office came out and said, oh, we're going to have all these surpluses. No need to worry about this stuff anymore. They were wildly off by like $10 trillion in their estimates over a decade. What, what did they assume? I don't. I don't really know exactly what they assume, but it was it was clearly fantasy. I mean, they're, they're predicting surpluses for like seven of the next 10 years. It turns out we were in debt all 10 of the next 10 years and a total of $10 trillion. I mean, you can't miss by much more than that. The CBO, CBO always misses horribly and never goes back and talks about how nobody appraises how they did retroactively. So by 2008, um, we're, we're to double the post-World War II debt. By 2014, we're triple. By 2019, we're... Uh, I'm, I'm getting confused because by 2019, we're actually five times. 2020, we went up to six times. So we're, mm-hmm. I mean, there's a chart in here in, in the quick hits about just showing how, I mean, right now we're six times World War II levels of debt after adjusting for inflation. And it's 12 times where we were in 1974. I mean, we're, if this isn't runaway debt, I don't know what is. And and the, the one out of every $9 in tax revenue that goes to nothing is just going to get bigger and bigger and bigger. And that's, that's a ton of money. I and mean, we were talking about over a half a trillion dollars compared to like that's getting to be it's not gonna be long before it's bigger than the defense budget so okay if if one of every nine dollars is being spent um you know we just keep borrowing money what why, why can't we why can't we do that i mean again um you know debt to gdp ratio is one of these things that i think people used to uh always you know peg as like a cat- catastrophic metric it's like well once you go one-to-one debt to gdp ratio that's when things are really bad once you go you know whatever again it doesn't feel like all of those claims have necessarily been substantiated, but but what's to prevent? I mean, you know, it's one out of nine. It'll probably take some time for it to be two out of nine or three out not of nine. Not long, and- I don't think. I mean, not if the interest payments start going up. And, and and there's no end in sight. It's just, it's really, it's 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 moral and fiscal irresponsibility. I mean, we've got generations of Americans who managed to sort of who who lived within their means, who had who had a government that lived within its means, and all of a sudden we have, uh, you know. Not to pick on the baby boomers too much, but I mean, they've kind of been the consumer generation and on their watch, these, these debt numbers have just skyrocketed and they're not, they're not changing anytime soon. And back in, you referenced the nineties and how in the late nineties, we were actually serious about the debt. And, and we realized that, well, let me talk about another aspect of it, that most of the spending is on autopilot. This is not spending the Congress debates and decides what can we afford? What can we allocate to certain programs? In, in, well, except for that one time where they, you know, got the world record long jump with all the COVID well, yes, stimulus. Okay, so and so I, did, I, I don't know that you want them debating and deciding because it sounds well, like... Well, they did decide to pile <laughs> up an extraordinary amount of new spending on right. in 2020, 2021, to some extent 2022. Yeah, this, is, this is also, I think, one of these interesting things. Like, Deficit Hawks have historically said, you know, we're running on autopilot. Congress needs to base these things. That'll be a natural limiting factor. No, it's not. Not not obvious to me that like when Congress debates this stuff, it decides to be really fiscally disciplined. It's like, no, it decides to blow out spending some more. Yeah, but it's even worse when it's just on autopilot. And that's part of the problem is that most congressmen don't actually even have to think about this stuff. And they clearly don't. Mm-hmm. I mean, most members of Congress do not seem to notice what the problem is at all. You've got a lot of people who don't care about the debt. And you got a lot of others who say they care about the debt, but have no idea what's really driving it. So when you have 70% of our tax revenues right now 
I'm, I'm sorry, it's 70% of our spending that makes up 90% of our tax revenues is on autopilot. It's stuff that like Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, where the government has, Congress has decided to just put these on perpetual, uh, you know, it's so-called mandatory spending. Congress can change it. It's not really mandatory, but it's on autopilot. And they don't even know how much these things are going to cost until the bill comes due each year. And then you've got this minority of spending left that Congress actually debates, so-called discretionary spending, which includes things like national defense. Right now, to balance the budget, even using pre-COVID numbers, which are even worse, but the last normal pre-COVID year of 2019, to balance the budget just by cutting the discretionary spending, if you leave the autopilot stuff on autopilot, to balance the budget based on discretionary spending, you'd have to cut defense, you have to cut spending by 75%. You'd probably have to cut defense by about 75%. I mean, that's just... You obviously can't do something like that. And so at the State of the Union, when you have uh, Biden accusing the Republicans of wanting to cut Social Security and Medicare and the Republicans saying, oh, no, no, we, we're not for that at all. And everybody stands up and applauds when everyone seems to agree that Medic- Biden says Medicare and Social Security are off the table. Well, if those are off the table, then there's no solution on the debt. And, and, and those shouldn't actually really be grouped together anyway. Social Security is not the problem. Our debt is not being driven by Social Security. It's not being driven by the defense buildup of the Reagan years. It's being driven by the great society programs of Lyndon Johnson, Medicare, Medicaid, which are just out of control. Mm-hmm. And, and the solution is to reform those programs and get the rest of our spending under control as well. But the real key is to reform those programs, which is what people took seriously on a bipartisan level in the late 90s. And Paul Ryan did later around 2010. Um, but right now, both parties, for the moment at least, have abandoned thoughts on all this. Let, 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 before we remove, go too far away, I just want to talk about in, ni- in the 90s, it's interesting. Part of what derailed the efforts there, apparently, uh, and this is based on a Politico article, not a, uh, you know, not well, Breitbart did, or something. Didn't, didn't Gingrich and Clinton come to a deal in the next morning, the Lewinsky scandal broke? Yeah, pretty much, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, uh, yeah, this, you know, the, the Balanced Budget Act of 1997, they're, they're working to cut spending. They actually do balance the budget. They've got these reforms in place to deal with Medicare long-term with this commission with John Bro, the Louisiana Democrat, and Bill Thomas, a Republican, and everything's looking good, and Clinton's apparently supportive of the commission, and all of a sudden, the Lewinsky scandal breaks and Clinton needs to shore up support with his left wing. He turns on the commission, says, I reject this. And it's just been runaway spending ever since then. I mean, the worst presidents in our history on debt have been in order so far per year, Joe Biden, Donald Trump, Barack Obama, and George W. Bush, followed by H.W. But four of those five are post 2000. So it's ugly now. It's going to get a lot uglier. And we're really just in denial about about it. We don't quite feel it yet because like you say, nobody's coming and saying, all right, we demand all the money at once. That's not going to happen. But it's just going to get worse and worse. So you said something interesting, which is that, you know, usually when people talk about this basket of of issues with with our spending, um, they say Social Security and Medicare. Um, But you're saying these two things should be separated out and that Social Security is actually not that big a problem when it comes to our fiscal state. Say more about that. Why is that the case? Yeah, I think Republicans miss the boat on this all the time. Social Security, whatever people's philosophical misgivings with it, when FDR uh, put this into place uh, back in the 30s, it was was put on autopilot, but there was a, a dedicated funding stream that paid for it. You had payroll taxes under Social Security that are big enough that they have sustained, they've covered Social Security's costs all along from the beginning. In fact, Social Security has run a surplus continually from the beginning. And 
people have paid into that. That's people have paid into social security. When when people start talking about cutting social security or capping social security, saying at certain income levels you shouldn't get it, people should be upset about that because this is sort of implicit contract that you paid in, you should be able to draw out. Mm-hmm. It's it's a modified paying for yourself program. It's somewhat consistent, at least, with sort of traditional American principles. You should be paying in for yourself. It's not really a welfare program in the same sense. Mm-hmm. So, so Social Security is not a problem other than the fact that uh, it does need to be tweaked a little bit. When when the retirement age, the retirement age, when it was put into place, uh, you know, was what, below 90 years the- ago or close to it was 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 65. Yeah. We've since raised it to 67. Mm hmm. While the life, while there's about as many people now who live to be 75, uh, about as high a percentage of the population who live to be 75 as live to be 65 then. Mm-hmm. I mean, we've got to sensibly raise the retirement age a little bit gradually, not like for people who are right on the cusp of receiving it, but mm-hmm. for people who are, you know, 10, 20, 30 years out. And that is not a big deal if politicians would just simply explain these facts to the American public. Medicare is a totally different animal. Well, so, so right. So this is always the, the most compelling thing I've always heard from Social Security reformers is that Social Security at its conception by FDR, the most progressive president in American history, um, was timed to, I believe it was like six months to a year after the median age of death. Like it was like you're, you're, you were likely to die at like 64 and a half, the median American was, and the average age of Social Security kicking in was 65. Right. So the actuarial tables, like in 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 consonance with with the math that make the program work, are very different today, um, because uh, you know some through technological innovation and everything we we have people living longer and longer lives, and so now it's the median age of death is like ten years north yes. of or at least five. It's I think different it's men and 10. women um, uh, north of the median age of so most people will dip into social security and part of the way that the math used to work is um and, and that you could keep a defined benefit structure was um was that variation i mean what would the retirement age need to be today to make the math work and why do people talk about social security becoming insolvent in a couple of decades what's the issue there all it really means is that rather than being than running a surplus for decades and decades bringing in more than it needed we're going to hit a point in about a dozen years where it will stop running a surplus and it will start going into debt mm-hmm. in a very slight way at first, and then it would get worse if we don't deal with Has it. Has it been holding on to that cash in the meantime, or does that money get spent elsewhere by the government? Well, the federal government has been, it used to be, uh, I'm old enough to remember when they used to have Social Security on one part of the books and the rest of the budget on another because Social Security was supposed to be its own thing, mm-hmm. self-sustaining. And then they realized, well, we got all this extra money slushing around over here. Let's put it over here and make the budget deficit look a little better. So, you know, they've been playing some of those games. Um, but I don't think it even requires a very dramatic, you know, a very drastic move. I mean, you could probably, I don't, I haven't run the numbers, but I think you could probably raise the retirement age to, you know, maybe 69 or 70 in the short term, maybe far off into the future, start moving it into, you know, 71, 72. And, and the problem would be solved. Mm-hmm. Social Security is as much as a giant federal uh, program can be well designed. It's pretty well designed and it's pretty, it's designed pretty much in terms of, American principles. Again, you pay in for yourself. And uh, uh, but again, Medicare, very different. OK, so so uh, we're not trying to, you know, drive grandma in a shopping cart off the cliff for Social Security. Now, now let's talk about how we're trying to do that for Medicare and Medicaid. <laughs> um, uh, l- l- let's take them one at a time. Uh, walk us through what the problem of Medicare is. Well, unlike in the 30s, when we established Social Security with a way to pay for it, 
1965, when Medicare and Medicaid became came into existence, we didn't really have any idea how to pay for them. The initial cost estimates from the Congressional Budget Office were so unbelievably low that they've buried them. You can't even really find them anymore. <laughs> um, and uh, but sure enough, you know, it has the, the cost of these programs has skyrocketed so much. Um, again, to the point where in 1975 we spent five times as much on defense as we did on Medicare, Medicaid combined. Five times as much on defense. By 2020, we spent way more on Medicare and Medicaid, about 56% more than we did on defense. And it's just going all in that direction. Um, so we, we didn't come up with a way to pay for it. And, and, and the proof of how much this is the, the real basis of our deficit problem, of our debt problem, is this. The first year that Medicare cost enough to actually even hit the books in a visible way um, was 1967. From that point forward, um, we the amount of money that we have spent on Medicare and Medicaid combined is almost exactly the same as the amount of, of deficit spending we've had. The two numbers are almost exactly the same. It's basically like we were fine, we would have been fine, but we added this new thing with no idea how to pay for it and we're in debt by that much. That's not to say there's not uh, spending elsewhere that's this way out of control, but Medicare, Medic Medicare, Medicaid are the driving force. And it's because unlike, I mean, people think they pay into Medicare. President Biden in the State of the Union tried to perpetuate that notion by saying people, he lumped them together, said, people say, I paid into my Social Security. I paid into my Medicare. You paid into your Social Security and you, nobody should be taking it from you. Medicare, only about a third of it comes from the pay Medicare payroll tax. The rest of it's just coming out of general revenues. And even the Medicare payroll tax Unlike the Social Security payroll tax, it's basically just a second, a de facto second income tax, the Medicare one. What I mean by that is that Social Security, you pay in up until a certain income level. It's something like $115,000, $120,000. And after that, you don't pay it anymore because, again, you're basically paying in for yourself and you're only going to get so much out. Mm -hmm. Medicare, you just keep paying and paying and paying and paying. So if you're somebody like, I don't know, uh, Tiger Woods in his heyday, you know, raking in all these purses from golf tournaments, you're you're subsidizing thousands and probably tens of thousands of people's Medicare because the tax just keeps going up and up. It's just a little added income tax mm -hmm. that doesn't remotely cover the costs of Medicare. I think we'd be better off just getting rid of the Medicare payroll tax, getting rid of the illusion that we're actually paying into it for ourselves like we are with Social Security, mm -hmm. fund it entirely out of general revenues, um, and, uh, you know, reform our, our income tax where we, everybody pays at least a little bit or almost everybody. And, uh, I think that would be a better course of action, but so it, it's just, it's not paid for. Mm -hmm. and, and then what about Medicaid? Medicaid is a similar vote. It's, I mean, it's followed a similar pattern. Um, the solutions are different, I think. I mean, the, I mean, if I can kind of cut to the chase on the, the solutions, I think it's been obvious from, again, that that period in the late 90s, the happy period where everybody actually came together in a bipartisan way and cared about these things in a serious statesmanlike way, um, it was obvious that the main way to reform Medicare was to move to a, a so-called premium support system where you use private competition among insurance companies to keep public costs down. And everybody basically agrees this would keep costs down. And over time, it makes a phenomenal difference. It's what Paul Ryan tried to push in his Obamacare fighting days uh, in the in the Tea Party era of Ryan, um, and uh, you know I've had my frustrations with Paul Ryan and uh, on immigration and and ultimately on uh, Obamacare when 
you know, under, under President Trump's presidency. But back then, Ryan was the best on fighting Obamacare, and he was the best on putting forward these serious reform ideas for for Medicare. And I don't think it cost Republicans politically because he was so good at it. He was so knowledgeable. Um, but uh, is that true? I mean, you know, the the ad that one of the political ads that people remember to this day is, you know, Paul Ryan shoving grandma off a cliff, um, you know, ha- was his sort of deficit hawkery, his uh, his austerity posture uh, damaging to Republicans national political prospects. Well, I mean, remember, that's conventional wisdom. Do you, do you remember what the Tea Party cared about? The Tea Party was a force. Mm-hmm. And um, the Tea Party cared about debt and Obamacare or Obamacare and debt, whichever order. I mean, they were, those were the two things. And and they were very much hand in hand with all this new rampant. I, I would say immigration was was very high up there as well. I would say that came a little later. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think that that was as much. Um, that was kind of um, that came to the forefront more when you had the Gang of Eight and Rubio was trying to and others were trying to push that. And Jeff Sessions was a one man bulwark in the Senate. I mean, one of the great performances anybody's ever had in the Senate, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I'm not saying immigration wasn't there for the initial Tea Party movement, but I think it was mostly frustration and out of control government spending and regulation like Obamacare. And I mean, debt can be a potent political issue, as we've seen with Perot, as we saw with the Tea Party. I mean, Obama lost 64 seats in the House election from the Tea Party. People say the Tea Party didn't, didn't influence the 2016 election. I was at the South Carolina Tea Party convention in uh, January of 2015, and uh, it was supposedly the biggest in the country, biggest Tea Party convention in the country. Three future presidential candidates spoke at that convention. Ted Cruz, Ben Carson, and Donald Trump. I remember being outside and watching the Trump plane go by with Trump written on the bottom of it. And um, those three guys ended up with 72.5% of the Republican primary vote the next year. Almost mm-hmm. three quarters over you know all the people who were supposed to get the votes. But Donald Rubio. Trump was one of two out of the 17 candidates that said he wasn't going to touch Social Security and Medicare? Well, Trump was a story. He had his own spin on the Tea Party. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, he, he definitely was never remotely a, a deficit hawk. Um, and he did take it what sort of in a different direction. What did he say? Republican Party, not the conservative party? I mean, that was a winning message. That was what the majority of Republican voters wanted, it seems like. Yeah, and I'm not... I mean, there's no question that that was not a point of emphasis with Trump. But he also, though, he got a lot of Tea Party type support, you know. Mm-hmm. And so I, I just my point is just I think the Tea Party had more influence on the 2016 election than people tend mm-hmm. to think. Um, where were we before that, though? I kind of lost. Well, uh, talking about me- Medicare and Medicaid and, and, and some of the reform proposals. So, uh, you know, OK, so th- there's this, there's a giant Medicare and Medicaid shaped hole in our in our federal books. Um, that is the primary engine driving the deficit. Uh, if you talk about cutting these programs, you will lose elections. <laughs> it's, not, it's not about cutting. It's about, again, Ryan was successful enough with pushing this message that after having pushed it for a couple of years, Romney was willing to tap Ryan for his vice presidential pick. But which, he lost. I mean, Romney wasn't always, didn't always have the best political judgment, but I would say that was actually a pretty good move. Now, what happened to Ryan after that is another question. He seems to have become Romneyfied, and I think deep down Ryan probably knows he should have run for president. And, uh, and rather than leaving the field to the man who, launched the Obamacare prototype in, in Massachusetts mm-hmm. to run in an Obamacare centered election. But um, I think we can we can blame the, the Romney loss to Obama pretty much entirely on Romney, who, uh, you know, who, who failed to play offense or defense in, mm-hmm. in the campaign and uh, and kind of just put it on, uh, put brought in the prevent defense after a strong first debate performance. I mean, Obama cleaned Romney's clock in all the close states. And um, but I, I don't think the Republicans gained politically from their fiscal seriousness, but I don't think they lost either. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but it took somebody with the knowledge of, of Orion to, to make that possible and, and, and being articulate enough. But ultimately, I think you've got to have a bipartisan effort on this. You've got to have a, a, a return of something like the old blue dog Democrats, the Democrats who actually cared about fiscal restraint and were very much uh, in existence in the late 90s. Bill Clinton was kind of one of them. And, and they are just non-existent right now. You can't reform these things from the standpoint of one party because you'll have the other side like like Biden at the State of the Union trying to demagogue the point and say, oh, you just want to cut this. No, Medicare has to be reformed using the premium support model where private insurers compete for the business of, of these people. The government gives a particular amount of money. Insurers take their chances. It would not reduce the quality of care uh, or, or I mean, it, w- it would give good quality care. Mm-hmm. Um, it would just make it so much more fiscally sound. And both sides of the aisle know this when they're being serious. Medicaid, a huge part of the problem is simply that for every dollar a state spends on Medicaid, they get between one and nine dollars of federal money. So what's the incentive? Mm-hmm. Spend as much as you can and get more and more federal money. Mm-hmm. If you ever decide to be get rid of some of the waste in your Medicaid program at the state level, uh, for every dollar of waste that you cut, you lose at least half the savings. In some cases, ni- you know, close to 90% of the savings just go back to the federal government. Mm-hmm. There's no incentive. I think a simple tweak of, sim- of simply saying each state's going to get a given amount for Medicaid from the federal government, a sensible amount. And it's not going to be dependent on what each state spends itself. That would make a huge difference. But look, I mean, you can see the other side of the the, the ledger on that, which is Hey, we're, you know, we're going to team up on this. The, the national government's going to put in some and, and you states, you have to you have to do your part as well. You can see the sort of like folk logic that would go into a structure like that to begin with. Obviously, it has right. its consequences. But but I mean, I, I assume there's there's consequences. I mean, you could get a, a collective action problem where it's like, well, states are incentivized to spend as little as possible. And the uh, national government, you'll still have politicians getting elected on the promise of spending more and more. So, you know, at least right now, there's a limiting factor on how much the feds will spend. Because it's correlated with how much the state level politicians will spend and the state level politicians at least have to usually kind of balance their budgets. I mean, it doesn't seem as as straightforward as you're making it out. Well, I think it's the incentive is very perverse. I mean, all the way down to states will hire uh, lawyers and consultants to try to make it look like their Medicaid spending is higher than it is to get even more federal money that they didn't then don't spend on Medicaid, but on other stuff. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is a classic example of something we see all the time. The federal government, uh, the, the typical American is far more clever and smarter than the federal government. And so federal bureaucrats and policymakers constantly put these things in motion and act like they can't foresee the consequences of these kinds of things. Oh, if if states get more and more, uh, you know, if they don't get any of the savings when they cut, well, they might not cut. You know, if, if the more they spend, the more they get from us, they're going to spend more and more. It's just like with the um, you know, with the with the unemployment benefits under COVID, only the federal government could sit back and think nobody's going to notice they could get thirty thousand dollars from not working rather than in some cases less than thirty thousand dollars for working, mm-hmm. and it won't change their behavior. Well, no, mm-hmm. a- a- the people on the ground, whether it's like just honest American citizens to to crooks, we see this all the time with the government's inability to deal with crime. You know, they're much more clever. Only. Policymakers in Washington, D.C. are so unable to foresee the consequences of the incentives they put in place. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Um, so on the um, on the cost um, uh, of, of, of these healthcare programs, um, one of the, the things that I've been talking to people about lately is how private industry um, 
actually takes advantage of, of the way some of these programs are structured in order to accrue as much of those dollars to themselves as possible. Do, do you think that's fair? Do you think that it is big pharma lobbying and, and some of these health insurance companies that are incentivized for these programs um, to be as, as, as cost insensitive as possible because they get to privatize those gains, even though all of the, 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 expenditures are are socialized in terms of the cost to every American. Well, I definitely think big pharma is a, a villain in this. I think the big hospital lobby is a villain in this. I mean, you see these this consolidation of hospitals. We used to have a lot more hospitals in America per capita, a lot more hospital beds. And it was part of the problem in COVID, actually. Um, and we had a lot more a, a lot more small hospitals, privately owned hospitals. Now you have these giant corporate entities. Practically any time you see the consolidation and centralization of power and money, mm-hmm. it does not work out well for the everyday American. And so you have these giant hospital conglomerates with uh, these big hospitals, but there's fewer and fewer beds per person. They jack up the cost to just, I mean, is there anything more obscene than the hospital bills that people encounter? If you really had to pay it, mm-hmm. like what's allegedly the cost, you know, and they put some phony number down and then... Uh, and then it ends up that the insurer or the government ends up paying some tiny fraction of a of a ridiculous number that's still pretty ridiculous. So, so I, I think that's there's there's fairness to that, but um, you know the the hospitals are are one element in a healthcare system that has titanic players in it. So you have health insurers, which are much more consolidated than hospitals, and you have big pharma that's extremely consolidated as well. Right. Isn't it only these giant hospital conglomerates that can? push and pull with those other entities in the pool well, too. Uh, it's always the argument, right? The yeah. bigger you are, the more you can negotiate and everything. But there's all these perverse incentives. I mean, what it comes down to in our healthcare system is that the there's almost there's very little incentive to control costs. Um you know when you when you go in, the the hospital's gonna get paid whatever whatever they want. I mean, anytime Americans have to actually shop for their choices and they decide is this worth it or not, they're looking for good value, businesses will offer good value. They'll mm-hmm. compete and and it keeps costs down. It's it's the free market. And in healthcare, we just really don't have that. I mean, mm-hmm. you walk in and um, you even experience it in terms of the customer service that you walk in and often, I'm sure you've encountered this, uh, hospital offices or, or um, doctor's offices or hospitals will treat you like you're not really the payer. You're just somebody who's the like, Middleman between them and the insurance money they're going to get, or the government money they're going to get. Mm-hmm. Um, That's empirically true, right? Well, yeah, but you treat it like that. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you have to, at some point in the system, actually have somebody who cares about the cost. If you do something like the premium support model for Medicare, you end up with um, insurance companies who have to make a profit bidding on. All right, what do we think we can cover here? And, and we'll offer the most attractive package we can. The government picks the winner. Uh, and this is the way you keep costs down. You bring in these market influences, these market forces. Um, right now, Medicare, I mean, when I used to write speeches for Secretary Mike Levitt at HHS, he would talk all the time about how Medicare is better than anyone else at one thing, sending out checks. Mm-hmm. That's what it does well. It's just the bills come in, Medicare pays, sight unseen. Mm-hmm. At the end of the year, Congress looks and goes, oh, that's how much was spent on Medicare. Mm-hmm. So you think that that Medicare should be allowed to negotiate with, say, big pharma companies and and stuff like that? No, that's that's Biden's idea, not yeah. mine. I, 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 Why not? That's again, it's not. I don't trust the federal government to do anything particularly well and, and mm-hmm. negotiate or anything else. I mean, actually, one of the one of the small things that was actually sort of done right was in the under George W. Bush, whatever people think of the of his um, of his prescription drug add on to Medicare. It was set up at pretty well, mm-hmm. um, where it had market forces. And as a result, um, 
the cost came in way below what the CBO estimated. Mm -hmm. But rather than saying, oh, well, look, this actually worked far better than a lot of people thought, or uh, rather than people on the left saying it worked far better than we thought, it's just purely an ideological matter. They do not like market forces working in that manner. Mm -hmm. They want the government to exercise that power. So, 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 so this is, again, one, interesting because it's one of those things that seems facially straightforward. It's like, you know, Medicare is negotiating on behalf of millions of customers and they should, you know, the drug companies, uh, you know, uh, should should have to compete um, on pricing for, you know, the, the the medication that that's being purchased under that. Well, why is that wrong? I don't think Medicare they always do things in a way that's like, you know, you, you squeeze the balloon, it comes out another direction. Mm -hmm. They'll do it in a manner um, where the people they're negotiating with will just take it out of something else, mm -hmm. somewhere else. I mean, so all of a sudden the people who are not on Medicare will get hit more or mm -hmm. whatever. Or you know, Certainly there's the obvious result that you'll end up with if you're going to pay less for things, you're not going to get as much or uh, uh, the, uh, you're not going to get the cutting edge things, the cutting edge treatments, what have you. But I just don't think the government can ever do this in a way where they can anticipate the consequences. Mm -hmm. And again, we have a track record of how the other model of introducing the market forces in the early 2000s mm -hmm. actually worked. So mm -hmm. why mess with it? When we occasionally have something the federal government does and it does it not as badly as it does other things, mm -hmm. we probably ought to stick with it. Mm -hmm. So you said that I think we're we're looking at for every $10 of revenue that the government brings in, it's spending 19. That was in 2020. Uh, it was in 2020. The largest margin that's ever been. Um, it feels like we're a long way away from, you know, a couple of congressmen getting together, tinkering with the budget a little bit, getting it evened out. Uh, what is the politically realistic path to winding down that deficit over the next few decades? I think for starters, you have to have people, we have to need office holders to actually start telling the truth to the American public mm -hmm. and taking these matters seriously. When we have, like when we had a president, I, I mean, Bill Clinton is by far not, not remotely my favorite president, but let's mm -hmm. give some credit where it's due. And we have a president like Clinton before he decided to turn tail with the Lewinsky thing. Mm -hmm. uh, no pun intended. And, uh, and then we have uh, Gingrich working with him and determined to, to, to get the budget down in a Republican Congress. Things, good things can actually happen. So, and, and by the way, it's interesting that you look historically, we've had the most success when it comes to deficits when we have a Republican Congress, but we have more success with a Republican Congress and a Democratic president mm -hmm. than when we have a Republican president. Mm -hmm. The worst scenario has been Democrat, Democratic president, Democratic Congress. Mm -hmm. But the best scenario has been Democratic president, Republican Congress. Mm -hmm. That's when it seems like people, uh, the Republicans have enough leverage to force the Democrats to be serious. Well, it's usually under the very specific conditions that Democratic president was elected they blew out spending in their first few years when they had a Democratic Congress. Then they get a Republican Congress, and then they're trying to run for re-election as president, so they need to shore up their fiscal conservative credentials, and so they negotiate with them. Well, that happened with Clinton. I don't know yeah. if there's another example. Yeah. I mean, Obama certainly never tacked in another yeah. direction. Um, well, but we got the sequester and everything under Obama. Uh, yeah, but that was awfully minimal. I mean, the, that it's was nothing something. like what we did in the 90s. Uh, yeah. how, how do we actually, in a stepwise way, wind down this massive deficit in the way that's politically sensible? Right. I think you got to have people start to tell the truth, paint the picture of where we're at. Why does it matter? How do we get here? That's what we're trying to do with our quick hits. Um, and, and then you're going to have to have both parties actually take this seriously. Mm -hmm. Maybe not in equal measure, but I mean, to some extent, I do think the debt and the, the fiscal irresponsibility on the part of the federal government is so appalling to most Americans that it does have political traction. But you have the counterbalancing uh, political 
potency of, of, you know, I want to protect what, what's mine. I want to protect my Medicare, Medicaid. One thing we haven't talked at all about is, is, the, is the tax ramifications of all this. You know, the left's solution to this is let's just raise taxes. Well, in real per capita dollars, so in inflation-adjusted dollars based on how many people there are in America, I mean, you should expect the government probably to be bigger when the country's bigger. Real per capita dollars, um, the government now collects three and a half times as much tax revenue as it did at the end of World War II. Three and a half times over and above population growth and inflation. 2022 was the government brought in more money than it ever has, still ran a $1.4 trillion deficit. So you've got, we don't have a, we don't have a taxing problem, except that maybe they're too high. We have a spending problem. Over that same time, when, when taxes went up three and a half times, spending went up sevenfold. We have a spending problem and it's, it's out of control. So we need to, both sides to take that seriously and then, and then to start actually focusing on what the real problems are, that it's first and foremost, Medicare and Medicaid. And when you have uh, people talking about, let's just have a budget, ba- a balanced budget amendment. Well, if you leave those things on autopilot, all a balanced budget amendment is going to do is require us to either have like, you know, cut, cut more than half of defense or raise taxes substantially. Is that really where we want to go? Mm-hmm. And we still want to co- want to solve the problem of the autopilot that's just getting worse all the time. So, you know, if Republicans are serious about this, they have to actually start looking at where what's driving the debt. And Democrats can can only live in denial on this so long. I want to pivot now to a slightly different topic. Uh, one of the things that you've written a lot about since you started American Mainstream Initiative has been the disastrous COVID policies across the country in a variety of ways. I think there's a bunch of different ways we could go to this, but, but one that I know is very near and dear, dear to your heart in terms of just evidence of the, of the total failures of our policymaking class is masks. First of all, are, is there anywhere in America that still has to mask that, that I don't know about? I mean, I don't mask on a daily basis, but but is, that, is it still a live issue anywhere? Well, practically anybody who goes into a doctor's office or, or uh, any kind of medical center right mm-hmm. now, and um, there's still people who, uh, there's a couple school districts that have mandated masks this winter. Um, there are still some mask mandates around. Thankfully, no Bernie Sanders is wearing it at the State of the Union. I noticed that. Yeah, it is N95 on. <laughs> it's ridiculous. So, w- w- walk me through. What, what is your jihad against mask 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 policy oriented around over these last few years, and, and why do you think it's a good example of just how uh, ridiculous our policymaking class can be sometimes? Well, I was so appalled in in early you know, spring or whatever of 2020, when people started imposing the masks after initially saying, oh no, don't wear masks. Surgeon General says, don't wear them. They're, they might even be counterproductive. And the WHO saying this and, and England's health authority and everybody's saying, you know, they don't do do anything and they might even be counterproductive. And and that was all true based on Mm -hmm. the best scientific evidence. Yeah. They were practically saying you were racist. If you were wearing a mask, go to the Chinatown parade, you know? (laughs) Right. And, and then all of a sudden it was like flip a switch and everybody's got to wear a mask. Mm-hmm. And then when President Trump said, well, I won't be wearing one personally, of course, then it became like, you know, now it's a political symbol that mm-hmm. it's like, uh, it's like almost wearing a, like wearing a Black Lives Matter flag on your face or something to wear a mask. And mm-hmm. for a lot of people, at least, and then you know, a lot of people were just afraid and trusting polit- uh, public health officials much more than they should have. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was just a- appalled at, I-, I was hoping to see the resistance from Americans that, no, this is not how we live. We we show our faces. We live in a republic. We live in a country that uh, respects our our rights, our uh, 
you know, our God-given rights and, and, the, and the author of liberty, you know, as, as my country says, is, is not, uh, did not mean for us to have these foreign objects on our faces. We should be feeling the sun and the wind. And it'd be one thing if, um, if they really worked and if we were facing the Black Plague or something, but um, they don't. And I did a deep dive into the research because I really wanted to know that question. But even if they did work, I think the failure on the part of public health officials and the executive, the executives, really mostly governors, and then ultimately Biden, uh, their failure to think through the downside of this is just amazing. I mean, human communication is a big deal. And and to act like when you can't see the smiles on someone's face, when babies can't see people's mouths move, when uh, adolescents are sitting there trying to, they're already awkward mm-hmm. enough or communicating now through masks, when all of it is so so counterproductive, so harmful to human social interaction. And so I wrote a piece called The Masking of America that dove into all this. And, and uh, you know, it's just, I think it's one of those classic moments where the hubris of our, of our, our elites these days, we, t- we just chuck aside, you know, thousands of years of, of, of received understanding on something and decide we're just going to do something totally different just because we can impose it. Mm-hmm. And public health officials love public health interventions. And so they saw an opportunity to force people to wear masks and they just couldn't resist. Mm-hmm. And you have these governors saying, I'll force them to do it because they can't resist exercising power that should be exercised by the legislative branch. And you notice that the representatives of the people, the closest representatives in the legislatures, in the state legislatures and in Congress, never impose this stuff. Mm-hmm. They actually end up passing legislation in various places to eliminate the executive mandates. Yeah, so it's it's it is I think a, a great example of of just the hubris of the people who who deign to rule us. I, I'm curious, what are the downstream consequences that are starting to become really evident of of what masking did, especially to children, but but across the population? Well, I I think it's it's horrible for the learning development of, of I mean, try to have a conversation with somebody in mask for people to pretend it doesn't make a difference is just crazy, right? Mm-hmm. When uh, Charles Darwin, of all people, wrote a, wrote a book about the expressions, uh, the important of, um, importance of emotions in, uh, in in man and animals, and and how the expressive quality of the human face is the defining aspect of human expression, and how you can see this. Darwin says when you try to have a conversation with someone who's masked, um, you know, it's it's always been obvious that seeing and showing the face is crucial to meaningful human social interaction. It's also you know, crucial if you actually want to have like free men and women citizens in Republic, as opposed to like faceless stormtroopers who are easily yeah. manipulated. And um, so I think you see a lot of, I mean, supposedly people's like oral hygiene is down and, um, it, and there's a lot of other costs, but I think the worst thing is, I mean, what, to me, what's most dismaying is when you see children walking along, even now I see them in my neighborhood, like walking home from school, wearing masks outside when it was actually really at a, at a high point in uh this is this is a year after it started in 2021. My son was playing little league baseball. I remember he was the only one of 12 kids out on the field not wearing a mask while playing baseball. It was just insane. Mm-hmm. So and, and it's so un-American. I was waiting for the pushback, and I think that um, it's probably one of the things I'm most glad to have written because I think it you know it was one of the efforts, uh, many other people as well that caused people to say, yeah, there really is something messed up about this. I mean, mm-hmm. why are we ceding all this authority to? public health officials who really don't understand the whole of human existence at all. Mm -hmm. And in this case, are actually denying even the medical science on the issue at hand. I want to go back to your time in the Trump administration, because obviously the the experience of of personnel in that administration is something that animates a lot of what we do. Um, 
when did you first enter the administration? What role were you in? Uh, and, and what did you see on the ground uh, the second you got there? Well, I was uh, initially the director of the Office of Health Reform. And that was in, uh, I guess, either March or April of, uh, probably March of 2017. Mm-hmm. Um, so you were two months after the admin started, you were in there? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, what I saw initially at uh, Tom Price's Health and Human Services is just a lot of horrible political appointees, frankly. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, it, it was uh, the the effort to repeal and replace Obamacare was the, and there's been no bigger political failure across the last couple decades, I don't think, than, mm-hmm. than that. I mean, it was just, it was- It was the idea was that atrocious. a lot of those HHS appointees were supposed to sort of take point on different elements of that process. Was that sort of the the mandate of that first V1 HHS was, was to steer that process? I don't think they were really steering much of anything. They were taking yeah. orders from- uh, uh, the Domestic Policy Council in the White House and from higher ups in the White House um, and who in turn were working with some rather junior heads of, of major committees in the House and uh, and then and then also in the Senate. Um, and and all the people who seem to know anything about health care just seem to kind of disappear or stand by the wayside. I mean, Paul Ryan was Speaker of the House and he had been just outstanding in the initial Obamacare debates, but he all of a sudden just sort of went AWOL. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so... What they ended up with was, and this had never been an issue that 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 Trump had cared personally about. You could tell on the campaign trail, and and it showed. I mean, there was no; it wasn't like he had somebody who really knew what he was doing or she was doing to lead the effort. What they ended up with, to kind of make a long story short, is a repeal and replace package that was so bad. I mean, I I had, why was it bad? Well, it, it would have done nothing to repeal Obamacare. All the worst elements of Obamacare would have stayed in place. New bad elements would have been introduced that would have raised costs even further in some cases, many cases probably. And then you just would have had this bipartisan gloss on this horrible legislation. I mean, across the years, I fought this Obamacare fight from the very beginning, from 2009 onward. And um, I would I would sometimes imagine how bad could an establishment-based alternative end up looking like? I never thought it could be nearly as bad as the one mm-hmm. that but there, But there was no bipartisan element on the table to fix Obamacare was oh, no, it? in, the, in no. the beginning of the uh, Trump administration. I mean, it was going to be just Republicans uh, focused on it, right? Yeah, but you would have thought it was a bipartisan thing. We would have thought it was Democrats leading the negotiations mm-hmm. in terms of how bad it turned out. I mean, so in terms of the things that it uh, maintained that that were the worst parts of Obamacare, what, what were some of those? Well, the things that drove up the costs in Obamacare uh, and HHS did a study that that showed this. Um it they uh the were the were the the community rating and guaranteed issue provisions mm-hmm. uh, w- what that really means is the the part of Obamacare that said you can no longer charge somebody more for getting health insurance after the problem has already come into into existence kind of kind of the equivalent in health insurance of allowing someone to buy homeowners insurance after their house is on fire. Mm-hmm. Or car insurance after they've had a wreck. So the the colloquialism for this is pre-existing conditions, right? Yeah, right. And so instead of fixing what the federal government had had already messed up on this, and there were some bad things that needed to be fixed. Mm -hmm. Like, for example, if you had insurance on your job and then you you went to uh, buy insurance on your own after leaving your job, the insurance companies would conveniently 
pretend that they never knew you had insurance on mm -hmm. your job. It could be the same insurance company. All of a sudden, they'd charge you more for pre-existing conditions. And that should never have been legal. Mm -hmm. But this whole dichotomy of employer-provided insurance and individually purchased insurance and the differences between them was, again, a product of the federal government, of treating each of them differently under the tax code. Employer-provided insurance got a big tax break and individually purchased insurance didn't and played by different rules. Mm -hmm. So instead of- And that's historical or was that particular to Obamacare? No, that was historical. Okay, yeah. So instead of fixing these very real problems and allowing people to slide from the employer market to the individual market and back and not pay for pre-existing conditions that they had had covered, not pay more for them, Obamacare's way of dealing with pre-existing conditions was basically to just outlaw the notion of insurance, namely that you have to buy the protection before the thing happens you're protecting against. Mm -hmm. That's how money comes into the system. Otherwise, costs skyrocket. And as that HHS study showed, I mean, it was like 70% of the increase in costs in Obamacare were a product of these things. The Republican Republicans weren't trying to address that at all. Now, to be fair, it was extremely hard to address because... The only way, reason the Democrats got those through is because, you remember, they briefly had the 60-vote uh, majority in the Senate to, to uh, overcome the filibuster, um, you know, and then uh, that didn't last long. You know, you had Scott Brown beating Ted Kennedy because that's how much people hated Obamacare. But the 60-vote threshold allowed them to do it. Republicans didn't have the 60-vote threshold to undo it, but they— utterly failed to realize the importance of it. And 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 so they're leaving this worst part of Obamacare intact. Another bad part was the, the big expansion of Medicaid under Obamacare. Most Republicans wanted to keep that, most establishment Republicans. Um, what does expansion of Medicaid mean? More Medicaid coverage to more people who are not poor, mm -hmm. more federal spending on Medicaid when it's already a leading driver of our debt. Um, so Republicans were going after none of the worst things in Obamacare. And then they were ready to throw themselves a parade and, and claim to have repealed and replaced it, mm -hmm. which would have been just nauseating. What was the new stuff they were trying to add in that would have exacerbated the problems? It was comparatively small potatoes compared to what was just being left. But I um, I don't remember all the specifics, but we used to run analysis about how, you know, I was, I was running things that showed that the insurance companies are now offering this price. You're basically guaranteeing this much money, well, the insurers are going to go up to there. You're going to have a huge increase in costs in a lot of places. It would actually make Obamacare worse in a lot of ways. And then on top of that, you know, it's just, it was always a, an issue that Republicans had been united in opposing Obamacare. Now they're going to kind of make it a a hybrid, a, a mm -hmm. bipartisan effort. And I, I mean, I frankly think John McCain did the country a favor by saying, yeah, I think that's right. down on it. So, okay. A uh, Republican president gets elected in a few years. What, in broad strokes, what is the 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 good Republican health care plan that that can reasonably pass look like? Well, at this point, it's been all been botched so badly that my hope is really just in trying to to keep the employer provided insurance um, strong and have that be the bulwark. As long as most Americans are happy with the health insurance they get through their job. Um, they will not want to have socialized medicine. Yeah. And that that's the, the main the number one thing that people who care about freedom and free markets and and good health care can push for now is to make sure employer based insurance stays strong. Now, libertarians don't like employer based insurance. They think it's theoretically impure and that you should be able to shop around for your own insurance. And I agree, you know, but you got to look at the political realities of where we are. Mm -hmm. And the only reason that um, the Democrats have not pushed for the Bernie Sanders style, um, you know, full on socialized medicine is because they know that you've got whatever it is, 
100 million Americans or whatever who get insurance for their job and want nothing to do with the inferior health care they would get as a result. Now, in a really rosy scenario, you could have a president who comes in, really understands the issue and is willing to take on the Obamacare pre-existing conditions rules and say, we need to we need to make insurance legal again with health care. Obamacare basically outlaws something that goes back at least to the Renaissance, you know, this great idea if you you pay in because you don't know what's going to happen and then if something bad happens, you're covered. And they said, no, you don't need to, don't worry about paying in. And then when something bad happens, you'll be covered anyway. So insurers just jack up the premiums mm. to extraordinary degrees where insurance is now so unaffordable. Um, so you have to have somebody who's willing to make the case publicly that the pre-existing conditions parts of Obamacare are the worst part of Obamacare. Um, but you know, that's going to be coming from like almost a total standstill for someone to do that at yeah. this point. Um, you know, it's interesting. At a conceptual level, I, I've thought a little bit about employer-sponsored health insurance. Follow my train of logic and tell me if I'm, I'm wrong. Employer-sponsored health insurance made a lot of sense as... Um, you know, as as the American economy was really maturing in the middle of the 20th century, because you could generally expect that someone would um, be with their employer for several decades, and that that employer had a a a interest in someone's long term health and well being, um, because all of the time that they were investing into their employee in training in terms of uh, building them up um, would be wasted if the employee got sick. Or, or, or was unhealthy. Um, and so uh, in, in an interesting way, really the, uh, the, the ideal win condition for employers was really healthy employees, not uh, just competing to give the best health insurance because they were actually interested in their long-term health, not just giving them a ton of goodies for when they need to go to the doctor or when they need to buy mm-hmm. pharmacy, uh, pharmaceutical medication. Now we live in an economy where someone is likely to switch jobs at least a dozen times in their career. That incentive structure has broken down. And I and I can't help but wonder if 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 the logic tree goes that you have an economy where people are going to constantly bounce from job to job over the course of their career, which I don't think is necessarily a good thing. I do think some level of stability in, in people's careers is part of, of the American uh, dream. If that's the case, does the employer-sponsored model no longer work from an incentive structure. Well, I think it still works because even if you shift, if you switch jobs, people want a job that has good health insurance coverage, mm-hmm. and they'll demand it in, in most cases. Um, I, I, but, but coverage is almost missing the point. It's if you're at the point of coverage, it means something has gone wrong, and now you need to pay for well, it. health insurance. Right, health insurance. Well, I mean, whatever the, the point I'm making is that I, I, I get the sense that employers used to have an interest in their employees' health, and now their interest is in providing the best health insurance, those are two different things. Yeah, I guess I don't really know how much I believe that employers really thought too much about their employees' health all along. They always wanted to provide the incentive structure they needed to keep employees happy. And um, not to say they didn't care, but I I think that the motivating thing was to make sure people had the insurance they needed. And Mm -hmm. um, I think that's still basically true. I, 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 I mean, I see what you're saying. I agree that like, there's more of a natural tie to the employer when you have a career with IBM or whatever with one employer. Um, I think this is especially operative on the blue collar end. You know, these 
his employers had an incentive to 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 provide work conditions that a didn't you know wear down their bodies as much and everything and then also right. ensuring that they 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 were taken care of in a way that they'd be able to still work at the factory in 40 years or whatever and that that's broken down a lot yeah i, I still think though that there's as long as employees are demanding good insurance to the employers the employers will offer it um and and it is theoretically better i agree to have people go shop for their own insurance separate from their job um and be able to carry that with them in a portable way throughout their lives. But Obamacare has made that basically impossible mm -hmm. because you cannot go buy your own insurance now without all of the Obamacare rules coming into effect, which includes other people don't have to buy the insurance to claim it. And so the people who do buy it pay the extravagant costs necessary to cover other people who are not paying in. Um, so they've ruined, Obamacare's ruined the market for individually mm -hmm. purchased insurance. And unless you have a Republican president and Congress that is willing to say that, you know, and we need to repeal these pre-existing conditions, um, parts of Obamacare, we need to replace them with pre-existing conditions, legislation that's consistent with actual insurance and, mm -hmm. and actually works. All you're left with is the choice between employer-provided insurance and socialized medicine. Mm -hmm. And in that scenario, <laughs> give me employer-provided insurance, you know, any day of the week and twice on Sundays. I think employer-provided insurance has always been always made more sense, though, also than a lot of people who are looking for sort of theoretical purity on the right have wanted to admit. I mean, it's one of these sort of quasi-organic things that worked out pretty well. Again, there is a federal government hand in it, though. Like they, the federal government didn't want to allow wage increases and bidding wars during the um, worker shortages of World War II, and so they started allowing companies to offer this, and they gave a tax break for employer-based insurance that they did not give to individually purchased insurance, and that is the root of the problem that's haunted us. And instead of equalizing that tax treatment and allowing individual insurance to, to prosper, we now have Ob Obamacare effectively outlawing individual insurance, and, and the government controls all that. And all, all we're left with is this, is the bulwark against socialized medicine. Yeah. Um, what is the best country, it's first world country, on healthcare, I don't actually know. Um, I, I've never really come across one I thought seemed particularly attractive. I mean, we still have the best healthcare, I think. And uh, so, what's the, the most choices if you can the, afford it? All the other alternatives. You hear people praise like Singapore's system. I certainly wouldn't want to be in Great Britain. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know. I mean, I don't think most of these. Uh, I mean, most of the socialized models are an absolute nightmare. Look how hard, just a little, for a little taste of it, how hard it was to for people to get in to see the doctor during the COVID period. You're seeing, I mean, the effects of that still. And I was pretty shocked to see something I was reading the other day that the uh, the excess mortality rate in America in 2022 was apparently 15% higher, according to the article I read. I didn't have a chance to independently check it, but excess mortality is 15% higher in 2022 than pre-COVID in 2019. So you're having these... Um, these lingering effects of people not getting in for healthcare treatment during the COVID period and denying, you know, regular visits. And it's not the best evidence that this is not long COVID is that Sweden, which of course followed the model of every other society in all of human history and just, you know, didn't pretend that they could artificially stop a highly infectious virus. They have not had the excess mortality of late. So it suggests it's not long COVID. It's, is long sort of COVID long real? COVID policy yeah. or whatever. Is long COVID real? Oh, yeah, I think long COVID is very much real. It, really? it's, uh, thankfully, it's 
you know, it's a minority of people, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I've, I've known people firsthand who have, uh, some pretty bad lasting effects mm-hmm. from, from COVID. And it's, it's a, it's a pretty bad virus. I mean, even though our, our way of dealing with it was arguably even worse than the virus itself, but the, you know, it is, it was the worst thing to hit since the Spanish flu of 1918, which was way worse and mm-hmm. killed off tons of people in their twenties and thirties and left orphans in its wake. Whereas COVID mostly, uh, affected people who were toward the end of their lives and not in great health. But you know, the long COVID thing I think is, is real. I mean, how, how extensive or, mm. I think it's probably hard to sort out in a lot of cases. This is a little bit of a weird thing, um, but I haven't seen a lot of people talking about it. Um, my sense is that something odd has probably happened to the actuarial tables because of COVID. You have a ton of people that were sort of likely to die at some point in the next 10 years who kind of died all at once. Are there going to be any funny consequences? Not funny, like haha, but like any 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 interesting consequences in public policy because of that over the next few years? I don't know. That's a good question. Um, I mean, I think you you would hope that like if you have an inordinate number of deaths in one year that you'd have fewer subsequently, but we're not seeing that. And I think it's because we. I mean, we have fewer than we didn't like at the height of COVID, mm-hmm. but we still have a high number in terms of historical norms, apparently. Mm-hmm. Um, again, I haven't substantiated that independently, but, mm-hmm. um, you know, cause I think we've just let our healthcare system, our healthcare system sort of function like our schools mm-hmm. during COVID, right? Nobody was, people weren't seeing people face to face. They were, everything was sort of short circuited, short changed. Mm-hmm. And, and so I think we see lingering results from that. So I don't know that we're going to even see like a benefit on the other side of this of, Mm-hmm. Uh, fewer deaths, um, you know, to compensate for the earlier deaths. Yeah, interesting. Um, so, okay, you spent the first little bit of the Trump administration at the Office of Health Policy where no one listened to you. Uh, and then you went over to the Bureau of Justice Statistics. What, <laughs> when, when did that happen? And uh, what was some of the stuff you got to work on over there? I loved working at, at, at the Bureau of Justice Statistics, BJS. We, uh, you know, it was great to put out. And you ran it. Yeah, I ran it. I mean, it was it was fun to run a federal bureau, and not, mm-hmm. not everybody gets a chance to do that. And so I was very appreciative. It was about is that Senate confirmed? Uh, no, it's interesting. The, the head of BJS used to be Senate confirmed until very recently, um, and uh, I'm glad that it changed because I don't think I ever would have gotten. I would have had to wait around forever and may never have gotten in. I mean, the Senate confirmation process was so messed up during the Trump administration, where I mean, uh, Mitch McConnell didn't want to put the the time into confirming people who are not, uh, you know, aside from like cabinet level or, or judges, obviously, which was a priority. And so ended up with all these holes everywhere in, in the federal government. That was one of the, probably the, you know, you've, you've hit on this so many times, but I, mean, I think one of the biggest weaknesses uh, in the Trump administration was the failure to get political appointees into these positions. And it wasn't just, you had some get in who had no business being there, who were not genuinely pro-Trump. Um, but you had also, you had the problem of just holes where there were no political appointees where they should have been there. And so as a result, you had career people running the show. Mm-hmm. And that's not good for a Republican administration in particular, because the career bureaucrats tend to act a lot like the Democratic political appointees in a lot of cases. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say, I mean, the people at BJS were, were quite professional, but still there's that leaning. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've, it was it was great to put out honest, readable stats on crime and punishment uh, on the I was constantly emphasizing we're putting out, we're going to put out stats that the American public cares about the core stats on on crime and punishment how long do people for years the Obama administration stopped publishing reports on how long people actually serve time in prison for various crimes so I got that going again why 
it, it kind of doesn't fit the narrative of mass incarceration mm-hmm. when you start looking at how long people actually serve for crimes, which are not exactly draconian levels. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is like, you know, how much do people actually serve for, you know, having an ounce of pot or whatever? It's like, yeah, turns out not at all. <laughs> right, right. How, how few people are in for that kind of thing mm-hmm. in reality and how and how how the even for the most serious crimes, the, the sentences are you know, often, I think, surprisingly short in terms of what's served. Mm-hmm. So we started putting out things like that. Um, we got away, you know, I was always emphasizing we are not here to serve the criminal justice academics who are somewhere to the left of political science academics. Mm-hmm. We're here to serve the American public and we're going to put out the stats they want to see. We're not going to have a trust the experts mentality of vague looking stuff that you just have to sort of trust. We're going to make it crystal clear what we're showing and 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 help people be able to look at it and appraise it with their own eyes. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it was great to work with with Attorney General Sessions and Attorney General Barr. It was it was a, it was a good place to be. Yeah. What was some of the most shocking stuff that you guys discovered over the course of, of, because I mean, running Bureau of Justice Statistics at the time that you were doing it is interesting because the sort of uh, BLM revolution that happened under Barack Obama would have had its echoes through the justice system. um, And, and you would have been able to a reveal what had been hidden and uh, b um, you know, describe what the consequences of different policies that have been implemented across the country were. What, what, What did you find? Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, there was a bit. There's a lag time in these federal statistical programs where it takes a long time to collect all of the data from the states and then uh, clean the data and 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 analyze it and run the get the reports out and everything. So it was hard to actually address some of the stuff in real time mm-hmm. of what was happening in 2020, say, mm-hmm. you know, summer of 2020, uh, toward the very end of the administration. But still, there was a lot we, we were able to put out and show that. I mean, a lot of the Again, a lot of the narrative about mass incarceration is really just not backed up by the statistics. Um, I'm trying to think of other interesting things. We put out a big report on immigration and crime uh, that got some attention. Um, I, I'm what was to, the upshot? I'm, I'm reliably informed that illegal aliens are the most law-abiding people the world has ever seen. Yeah, well, um, that was one thing we really worked on is you hear that, right? Yeah. You hear that stat. And it turns out that, I mean, as best we're able to glean it from the states. And this is a place where often the states don't know or don't don't keep records of who's um, who's a non-citizen, let alone an illegal alien. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, but we were able to piece it together as well as we could. In one case, we had to pull something off the California government's website because they wouldn't share the data with us. Um, that uh, it looks like, um, you know, the claims that non-citizens are underrepresented in 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 prison is they're false. I mean, they, they pretty much match up with the general population. Um, and, or, 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 uh, yeah, I'm trying to remember. I mean, I, I think, you know, naturalized citizens are probably a, a relatively low crime committing bunch. Mm. <laughs> um, as you probably know, <laughs> um, but, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, a lot of these myths about, about the people who come across the border illegally not committing crime. I just I don't think there's any real truth in it. Mm-hmm. What about um, the consequences of sort of uh, criminal justice reform policies uh, when it comes to um, things like drug offenses and stuff like that? Were, uh, were you guys seeing, um, you know, any any red pills, so to speak, on recidivism rates and stuff like that in terms of some of these pieties that people would love to believe about, you know, how well, I don't think to let them out. Yeah, I mean, I think the the... the I mean, it was limited data that came out that fast, but I mean, I think that, you know, it did lead to greater recidivism and we put out a, a great recidivism report. Um, when I, uh, 
was toward the beginning of my time there. And we put out a couple others as well. But I mean, it, it tracked um, prisoners released and, and did they get arrested again? Mm-hmm. And I mean, the number of people who get rearrested is extremely high. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it was uh, it's an illuminating report about how, you know, when people are released, they're often liable to end up back in prison. And 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 like, I guess the the, the upshot is when you release people from prison, and and you're there is a price to be paid. I mean, the, the likelihood that they will commit another crime and get rearrested is is high. That's not to say you leave people behind bars forever, but it's got to be part of the calculation. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's the kind of most shocking thing that you you learned over the course of running BJS about just the reality of American crime and punishment? What's what's the most shocking crime statistic? <laughs> Yeah, it's an interesting question. You'd think I'd have an easy answer for that. I don't think I saw a lot of stats I thought were particularly shocking. It was more the matter of like, the more you actually just play it straight and try to put out honest stats that are reflective of the on the on the topics Americans care about and policymakers need to know about and not do the bidding of criminal justice academics, the more you realize it just kind of fits the, the longstanding knowledge we have that when we... Um, you know, we've gone through this whole process with crime where we abandoned time-honored notions of policing and what have you in the in the 60s and 70s, and we ended up with rampant crime. And then you had, it got so bad that New Yorkers of all people were willing to embrace Rudy Giuliani as mayor and, and Police Chief Bratton and, and their broken windows policing mm-hmm. policy and all the James Q. Wilson stuff and everything. And this works worked like a charm. I mean, anybody who went to New York in like 1980 versus... 2010 or something. I mean, it was just night and day. Mm. Um, and then we've, of course, forgotten it all and and felt the need to relive it. And now we have these tent cities all over the place and, mm. you know, homeless people with drug addicts everywhere and and crime on the rise. And, uh, you know, it's I don't know why we have to relearn these things over and over again. But, um, yeah, I, I, I think um, I mean, I certainly recommend that people check out the the BJS reports, because they're there. We really made a conscious effort to write them in a way that they'd be for the just intellectually engaged everyday American citizen uh, mm-hmm. and and be meaningful to them. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, we did to- put out a report right at the end. I should say that we uh, I was particularly I thought was particularly useful that uh, uh, we released like in the last week of the administration that it talked that, that, that really took a deep dive into who do victims say commit crimes against them and who do the police arrest in terms of demographics oh, and it showed that there's pretty much uh you know complete overlap between the t- uh, the, the two groups match mm-hmm. and uh it was done by the the senior statistician at, at bjs the guy who had been there since the reagan administration mm-hmm. alan beck um and and he did a great job and it, it uh anyway it's very illuminating report and that may be a subject of a of our uh an upcoming quick hits <laughs> that'd be great um to close out, uh, I, I a very fun personal story that that we discussed a little bit before the show that I'd love to hear a little bit more about. Um, why does Splash Mountain matter to you? <laughs> <laughs> so Splash Mountain is this great ride at still at Disneyland, uh, not there anymore at Walt Disney World as of like two weeks ago or something mm-hmm. like that. Um, I think anybody who's been to Disneyland or Walt Disney World is aware of the ride. It came, it it, it began in the 1990s, I think, like early 90s, 92 or something like that. Based on the, you know, Br'er Bear, Br'er Rabbit, uh, Br'er Fox, Uncle Remus tales, which are beloved tales and uh, and and really represent, according to like, I've, I've read enough of opinions of experts in children's literature. This is like one of the most important works of children's literature ever. Joel Chandler Harris's 
Uncle Remus Tales. And um, Disney decided that they were somehow offensive, these, you know, humorous tales that are that are rooted in slave folk tales. I mean, you'd think that they'd be celebrated as like we're bringing forward these folk tales of people who were whose stories are sometimes forgotten. And so they decided to shut down this ride, which, um, according to TripAdvisor, was the most popular ride at the Magic Kingdom. Pretty unbelievable you'd shut it down. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's just, it's it's one of the best examples of, of the hyper-wokeness I've seen. And it really hasn't been publicized a whole lot. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and it's so, I feel like fighting for Disney is like almost akin to fighting for baseball, major league <laughs> baseball. You know, it's so such a, a key aspect of Americana. Mm-hmm. And uh, I used to work, I, well, probably we were talking about earlier, I used to work at Disneyland as a ticket seller during graduate school. Mm-hmm. I loved it. I loved working at a job. And we used to have uh, the cast members, as they called us, would would have canoe races before the park opened around <laughs> Tom Sawyer Island, and uh, which has since been renamed to Disneyland, but still has the name Tom Sawyer Island at Walt Disney World, thankfully. Mm-hmm. And uh and to get there in the morning before the park up, we'd actually walk right through Splash Mountain, like through mm. the bowels of it. You'd see the all the different parts of the ride from inside. And mm. um, and I, I came across this great quote from Walt Disney recently. Uh, back in, I think it was like 1957, he had a, a film he was introducing on his Disneyland television show called uh, The Liberty Story, Celebration of America's Founding. And um, and he said as he introduced it, you know, as you know, Disneyland is a kind of a monument uh, to to America and the American way of life. And I thought that's so perfect. That's what it is, right? Main Street USA and Frontierland and and the great moments with Mr. Lincoln in, in Disneyland. And I mean, Walt Disney was just, I don't know that there's ever been a better example of the free enterprise system and what it can bring about than mm-hmm. to have this one man's creativity create these wonderful things. And, and Disneyland and Walt Disney World are right at the pinnacle of it. And yet you have current Disney that's just the total opposite. And, uh, and so, I mean, like with uh, Splash Mountain, it's interesting that there was a petition in the in the aftermath of the George Floyd killing that uh, about 20,000 people said, oh, we need to close Splash Mountain down. And then another petition started up and about 100,000 people said, no, 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 we need to keep Splash Mountain open. Disney decided, no, And, and the close complaint it. is because the song that plays is Song of the South? Well, it's Zippity Doo Dah, yeah. which is an iconic song. Yeah. I mean, like if, if the, the most iconic Disney songs are probably like Chim Chimmery, Zippity Doo Dah, both of which won Academy Awards for best song. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and now they've purged that from the park. They won't play Zippity Doo Dah, which is a totally, you really be hard pressed to find anything offensive when you listen to Zippity Doo Dah. Um, Disney's decided that the movie Song of the South is so offensive that any connection to it whatsoever must be purged. Um, Walt must be rolling over his grave, but mm-hmm. I mean, I feel like it's the job of people who love America to to try to fight for Disney, not give up on it, because it really is important, I think. But uh, to you know, they ought to be called out for this kind of stuff. I mean, it's it is crazy to shut down that ride. I I, I would think that like if there were a nuclear holocaust or something, and you know, and uh, aliens came in a couple hundred years and they tried to resurrect what had happened in, in, in America. And they, and they saw newspaper clippings. And they said, Walt Disney world shut down this ride that was based on beloved ride. That was based on slave folk tales. Disney must've been racist, right? In the, <laughs> in the traditional sense of the word. Yeah, no, it's, it's wild. And it's a real shame. I mean, I have core memories growing up because we used to live in LA and then also lived in Georgia. So, you know, driving down to Florida was super easy for, for a quick little vacation. Uh, I've probably ridden those rides thousand times what did you think of splash mountain it was great yeah it was, it was, awesome. it was one of the best you know, i'm right? kind of a roller coaster head so anything <laughs> that gives me 
adrenaline is good. So, you know, it's, Splash Mountain's pretty tame, but still, it's, you know, <laughs> it's childhood right there. So it's a huge shame. Um, Jeff, how can people keep up with everything that you're doing? Well, in, uh, the American Main Street Initiative, um, we're at uh, AmericanMainStreet.org. Great URL. Oh, thank you. I was shocked we were able to get it. I can't believe nobody had American yeah. Main Street. It's actually really pathetic that that was available. <laughs> it means no one's ever cared to get it before. If you want to find the quick hits, you can see them at AmericanMainStreet.org or just that URL slash debt. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, uh, let's see. Uh, I'm trying to think what else. We, we have a... Uh, we have a Twitter account, but we don't, we're, it's not it's not the most active thing. I think our website is probably the best source of information. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I'm embarrassed to say I don't know our Twitter handle. Hand, hand, <laughs> hand, <laughs> yeah. It's like you're not a poster. <laughs> American Main Street, basically something like that. Yeah. <laughs> Well, make sure to uh, to follow that and make sure to to look at this quick hit and and everything else. And Jeff, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you, Sarav. It's been my pleasure. Hopefully you guys enjoyed that. It was certainly one of our longer episodes, but we always get that way when we have on these guests that know about the charts and the numbers. You know, the Oren episode was super long. The Julius episode was long. The Jeff Anderson episode is long. Um, I'm a moron, so I don't know anything about anything. And so when I when I have someone in front of me who does, I can't help but just pepper them with a thousand questions about it. As always, be sure to go to AmericanMoment.org, rate us five stars, subscribe on YouTube. We're putting out a ton of clips and shorts and reels on Instagram and Twitter and uh, uh, YouTube. Uh, Jake is going crazy. Uh, Please go give him a thumbs up and and say uh, that he's doing a good job. Um, There's always some fun content there shared around. It's always surprising what goes viral. Uh, And we are grateful, as always, that you guys continue to listen to the show. Go to AmericanMoment.org for all of our programs. Go apply for the fellowship. And we will see you guys next week. Moment of Truth is an American Moment Studios production filmed at the Conservative Partnership Center. Our podcast is produced and edited by Jake Mercier and Jared Cummings. Our intro music is A Minor Struggle by Ryan Serenich. Don't forget to like and subscribe on all platforms. And you can go to AmericanMoment.org to learn more.